Well, good morning. Thanks for being here. Uh, if you're joining us online, also, thanks for joining us. So we moved here about 19 years ago, and I was super excited to hire on at Lincoln Brea, and most of you know we planted out of Lincoln Brea, and I hired on as a singles pastor, and so I got the job, I called Lincoln Brand, I said, where can we live? Well, it's no, no really bad areas around the church. So I, I found online this apartment at 84th and Van Dorn, Somerset Apartments. Is that pretty close? Yeah, that's relatively close, safe. Yeah, that's relatively safe. And so I called them and they had a thing, good, I'll do it, I said. But I failed, failed, I wanna op- mention that, underscore that, I failed to think about we were getting a second floor apartment. That's critical because when we moved, our youngest son was about a year, maybe 14 months old, and he had learned to walk, but like many 14-month-olds, he would walk and then he would fall. Boom, okay, we're on a second-floor apartment. You with me on this? Then our older son's about, eh, he's three months short of four, maybe three and a half, three and three quarters. And uh, do you remember Pooh? You remember Winnie the Pooh? He was Tigger, man. He was all over the place. And we find out pretty quickly, we have a nurse who works a night shift living below us. And so pretty quickly, uh, my wife found a note, uh, not too friendly, saying, your kids are driving me crazy. I mean, nicely is what it said. And Hope wrote a note and said, look, I'm sorry if, you know, if my kids are keeping you up. Here's my number. Call me. I'll take the kids out. And really, the person was fine after that. You know, explain. We got a 15-month-old, 14-month-old, almost four. And so, well, so we move in October. November, we contract to have a house built, Vintage Heights, 93rd and Old Cheney. And I don't know, December or so, January, they dig the hole. And that was a big deal for me. Because that set in motion this process that we would no longer live on the second floor of this apartment. That hole gave me hope. And then then the house progressed, and and so we got there. Well, I want to suggest to you that the first Christmas, in a similar but infinitely greater way, sets a hope in motion. And I want to talk about that hope this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to Luke Chapter 21, we're going to start in verse 25, and we're going to go through verse 36, and just asking this question, what hope does Christmas set in motion? Now, we are taking a break from our series in the Sermon on the Mount to focus on Advent for four weeks. Advent is a preparation for the coming of Jesus. Well, and Andy, Jesus has come, why, why are we preparing? We want to think about the significance of his coming. There's a mystery that God took on human flesh in order that he may communicate with us. When I was in seminary, uh, I was required to read um, transcripts. And this particular one was a debate between a theist and an atheist. And the atheist said this, the question of God is absurd. Because if God exists, he is finite. We'd agree with that. We are infinite. How does the finite grasp the infinite? You can't, it's, it's beyond us. To which the theist said, that's true unless the infinite decides to come down 
to the level of the finite. And that's what happened. That's the mystery of Christmas, that God would step down, leave heaven, take on human flesh, and become a human being, that we might communicate with him, that we might know him. You've heard me speak before. Do you know that after we graduated seminary, Hope and I went to language school in Costa Rica, went on to be missionaries in Chile, and I really learned to speak Spanish. Uh, we live with a Costa Rican family, but there was a guy right across the street who had an in-home business. So I was in his house, minimum five days a week, sometimes six, and we would have a conversation. And I was about six weeks in, and we were having a conversation. I thought, well, I'm, I'm getting there. But occasionally, on his in-home business, he would take orders on the phone. So in this particular, he, he takes an order on the phone, and I can't understand the thing he's saying. I mean, he's speaking Spanish with another native Spanish speaker, and it's kind of like, I don't have a clue. And I realized he is dialing his Spanish down in order that we might communicate. Do you understand at Christmas, God dialed down so we could understand him? So that's what we're doing to reflect on Advent. And ironically, it's this time of season, I'll talk about these pressures again, we get all this stuff, you gotta get the right present, you gotta go to the right party, you gotta, and your mother-in-law's coming for dinner, and it's just kinda like, I'm stressed, and I don't think about God. We have devotionals. Most of the physical copies are gone. I think there's one back there and one back here, but there are online copies that we will get you. So if you would like to follow along in a devotional, we're gonna be, I'm gonna be taking, for the next four weeks, I'm gonna be taking a passage a week from this devotional. Contact us. You can pick up the last two, or you can, if you're online, we have digital copies. We can get those to you. But we invite you to follow along. Why? That we might cultivate this relationship with God. You know, a tree takes forever to grow roots deep. We want to take this time to grow our roots deep in the mystery of this God who decided he wanted to communicate with us. He wanted a relationship with us. And in sending his son to take on human flesh, took the extreme step. Let's not miss that as we celebrate Jesus' birth. Let me set up my passage this way. Jesus is at the end of his uh, three-year ministry, and people have come to realize, okay, Jesus is someone of authority. He's been, you know, healing the sick and quieting the storms and raising people from the dead and casting out demons, and so um, they realize he's got, he's got something going on. Well, in this particular point in Luke 21, the, the people are talking about the temple, and 20 years before the birth of Jesus, 20 years B.C., 20 B.C., Herod doubled the size in order to win favor with the Jewish people. And now, so not only is it a place where they go to worship, but it's a cultural center. And they're just talking about the beauty of the uh, temple. And Jesus said, oh, by the way, this temple's going to be destroyed. What? What? That's verse 5 and 6. Well, when's this going to happen? Well, uh, that's the question asked in verse 7. Uh, in verse 8 and 9, Jesus doesn't give him a timeline. He just said, be, be careful about following false messiahs because a lot of people are going to come along saying, I'm the Christ, follow me, and, and don't, don't do that. And Jesus is going to begin here going back and forth between immediate judgment and, and future judgment, and that future judgment's related to his return. And so in verses 10 and 11, he jumps to a future judgment, and he says, Look, when I come back, I'm going to bring justice once and for all. First time he came, he came as a lamb. He was slaughtered. He offered salvation. The second time, he's going to, there's been a lot of stuff going on. 
A lot of rebellion towards God. He's going to put it down. He's holy and he's righteous. And he said, when my wrath comes, there's going to cause a cosmic disturbance in the world. There's going to be wind. There's going to be earthquakes. Is this literal or figurative? I don't know. But it's going to be a frightening time. And there's going to be no place to hide. And Jesus said, just be ready. When I come to settle accounts and my wrath gets poured out for all the injustice, for all the trampling of the poor, for all the, for all the stuff that has been wrong, it's going to be a very unsettling time in our world. And then Jesus said, hey, in the time leading up to my second return, there's going to be an outpouring of persecution. Church, you're going to feel it. You're going to be in prison. You're going to lose your job. Some of you are going to lose your life. That's going on now, but it's going to become very intense. And then verses 20 to 24, Jesus back, jumps back to the present time. He said, those of you who are listening, beware, because there's a day coming when the Romans are going to trample Jerusalem. And this happened in 70 AD. He predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. When you see the signs, when you see the armies around, get out. If you're nursing a baby, get out. It's going to be bad. So he moves from that judgment back to his return. And that's where I'll pick it up in verse 25. It says this about his return. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And in the earth, dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. That's the cosmic upheaval with his return. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for even the power of the heavens will be shaken. When I come back to settle, it's going to be unsettling. It's going to be like nothing you've ever seen. And again, he's used trying to find our language to describe something that is going to be cosmic in its upheaval. So we step back from this and we say, why? Is, is Jesus into scaring people? Is, is that what this is about? Jesus wants to freak us out. Jesus wants to unsettle us. Jesus wants to... The movie The Perfect Storm is about the storm of a century. It happened from October 28th to November 4th of 1991. Um, three fronts came together and they said this happens once every century. And so, you know, that was a warning to fishermen, don't go out in that storm. It happened off the coast of Nova Scotia, up in the New England area. Well, the movie's about this crew of the ship, the Andrea Gale. And these guys were several generations as fishermen. They thought, yeah, ah, we've seen storms before. Yeah, it's bad. But we've got to do one more run. We're going to go out. Okay, the movie then is speculation, it's artist license on what happened to the crew of the Andrea Gale because after the storm, they never found remains. I, somebody said to me, Andy, do you know that 30 years later they're having remains of that ship that are showing up off the coast of Ireland? That's, that's how bad it was. But the movie speculates on what goes on when they're out at sea. And the take home is this. These hardened, seasoned, veteran fishermen realize there's a point. We're not getting out. They realize there's a point. It's too late. We're going down. That was a horrifying moment for that crew. You want Jesus doing this? 
He doesn't want us to get there in relation to the judgment of God. When he comes back for the final judgment, it's too late. It's too late. So no, Jesus isn't trying to scare us. He's not. Hey, look, if he wanted to bring judgment, he just bring judgment. Boom, just do it. But he warns and he warns and he warns and he waits and he waits and he waits. Why? In the hope that people will return. So after this cosmic upheaval, after these signs, what's going to happen? Verse 27. They will see the Son of Man. That is a term from Daniel 7. Daniel was an Old Testament prophet, and God gave him a vision of the end times. And he said there's this divine-like figure called the Son of Man who will come. And for Jewish, throughout Jewish history, nobody knew what's, what's who, what's the Son of Man. Jesus said, that's, that's me. The Son of Man pro- pro- prophesied all the way back in the book of Daniel, seven, eight hundred years before him, the Son of Man coming in cloud with power and great glory. He will come back. Jesus will come back to set up his kingdom on earth and the final judgment will happen. So what does that mean for you and me who choose to follow Jesus? Here's what it means, verse 28. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Lift up your heads because your redemption is near. You understand why we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel? You see, the church, uh, the world doesn't want to hear a message. They get tired of it. We're good enough. No, no, we need a Savior. We're really not. We need to be transformed from the inside out. They don't like that message. I'm working on a series in Revelation that we're going to start. I'm about halfway in. There's a point in Revelation where the world celebrates the silencing of the church. They, they, they send gifts. It, it's a celebration. Finally shut them up, only to realize that God's going to raise the church back up. So the church will suffer, and particularly as the final days draw near, the, the, the in, Persecution will intensify. But when Jesus comes back, those who don't know him will realize, oops, oops, it's too late. But fear you, your redemption is drawing near. The, 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 the equation is going to change 180 degrees. Your redemption is near. See, that second return of Jesus couldn't happen until his first coming. So Christmas sets this hope in motion. In fact, Jesus said, be ready about his return, his second return. It could happen in any moment. He talks about a parable in the thief of the night at the end of Matthew 24. Then right at the beginning of Matthew 25, I think the Spirit juxtaposes these two parables intentionally. He says, but be ready because my return could be longer than you think. He talks about a bridegroom who waits. And, and so he says, you live this tension. My, my return could be right now, so be ready but it also could be a thousand years away, so be prepared to wait. But whenever it comes, know this, God is coming back to vindicate his people. Christmas sets that in motion. So what's the hope that Christmas sets in motion? Sets in motion the hope that Jesus is gonna return to vindicate his people. Jesus is going to return to vindicate his people. Now we live in a part of the world where the church hasn't suffered much. There are our brothers and sisters around the world who have suffered a lot and they cry out for the blood of the martyrs, for those who are in prison, those who have lost jobs, those who have had lost family. She said, I'm going to come back. I'm going to redeem that. I'm going to change the equation. 
because he's going to step into the game. So fifth grade, I was in that awkward stage in relating to girls. It's kind of like, you know, up to the third or fourth grade, God, they've been annoying. Have they been annoying? But about fourth or fifth grade, it's kind of like, they're still annoying, but they're kind of cute too. And it's kind of like, why do I, how do you, how do you, how do you, and my wife said, I'm still kind of working that through. I'm after 27 years of marriage. But it was fifth grade, and we were playing dodgeball in PE. How many of you play dodgeball? You remember that? You get the volleyballs out, and if you hit somebody, they're out. If you throw the ball and catch, I catch the ball, you're out. Team volleyball, if you're playing, I catch the ball, then one of my teammates gets to come in. And so you can play individually or you can play collectively. So we're at the end of the PE class, and the teacher said, I want the girls down at this end. I want the guys at this end. And we realized we are playing guys against the girls in volleyball. And so the guys at this point are starting to grow. And so we come up. you got to stay behind center court. We haven't started playing yet. And we come up, and it's kind of like, you, 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 you. And, and they are back against the wall because it's kind of like, yeah, this isn't going to go well. But all that changes with one statement. Mr. Pluhart is the PE teacher. He's about 6'3". He looks about 12 feet to us boys. You know what he says? I'm going to play on the girls' team. Oh, everything changes. All of a sudden, the guys are kind of walking back. And the girls are walking up saying, yeah, they just stood back and watched him. Ping, ping, ping. He put us out like that. They won. Their champion won. Do you understand... When Jesus comes back, he's going to change the equation that quick. And what seems like a crushing defeat, the church is just getting rolled and rolled and rolled. In an instant, it will be changed. So when Jesus talks about his return, lift your head, your redemption is near. Yeah, your redemption from sin, but your redemption collectively from the rejection of the world. So, Jesus is going to give us several take-homes from that. And here's the first one in the form of a parable. Verses 29 to 31. He told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Okay, Nebraska is an agricultural state. This ought to come home. The fig tree, when it starts budding and growing leaves, you know what? Summer is at hand. When the leaves start dropping, you know winter is close. Jesus said, if you can do that with a plant, you need to be able to do that with the signs of the times. Be watching. So you're not surprised. When you see stuff going on, you're not thrown. Read the signs of the times so you can think about that in context of Jesus, his work in our world, and particularly his return. Now verse 32 is the most perplexing um, verse in this passage, and I want to read it. Here we go. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The question scholars wrestle with is, who is this generation? Is it the generation Jesus is talking about, and he's talking about the, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and is, is it that immediate, or is it 
What I think is this generation is the generation that experiences these cosmic signs. They will see the return of Jesus. What I'm thankful for is we have two people on our staff who are taking seminary right now, and they will be able to answer this question for you. And one of them is Nate Gotzel right here. So you grab Nate right after church if you don't understand that, and he will ask, answer that question for you with certainty on who this generation is. But I think what that's saying is you who experienced those, that cosmic upheaval, you're going to see the return of Jesus. It's, it's going to follow closely. I think that's what fits with the passage. So what? Verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And it's easy to dismiss this. Oh, I don't think it's going to happen. So I'm asking you, I'm asking me, what are we counting on? What is the foundation that we're sure? This, this, is, this is where I'm the life. Jesus said, I want you to do it on my word. Build it on my word. I grew up, my parents uh, went through the depression. My dad was born in 25. My mom was born in 26, so they lived through it. And I heard all about it. And um, I was just thankful that economic measures had been put, been put in place, that we would never have a, another depression again. In the late 90s, they, they, the economy was going, and I heard one news commentator say, has, has the United States developed a recession-proof economy? That's what he said. And that was all good, right, till 2008. And we came this close as a nation to having depression. We got one company after another getting a bailout from the, from the government because they, 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 what? I thought our economy was rock solid, that this would never happen. No, don't build your hope on the economy. When I was in college a few years ago, maybe more than a few, I saw a movie called Outbreak. It was about a pandemic. And that seemed almost kind of like sci-fi-ish, Star Wars or Star Trek. I mean, those, I mean, those things don't happen. They don't, the last one was 1918. That was, at that time, 70, 60, I don't know, 80 years ago, whatever it was, 70, I guess. Those things don't happen. I mean, we figured the pandemic out, haven't we? That all changed a couple years ago, didn't it? What are you counting on? At the foundation, what is it under your feet that won't be shaken? Jesus is saying this, heaven and earth might pass away, but my words will not. Will you base your life on the word of God. Earlier in my Christian experience, someone told me, Andy, do not trust your feelings. Feelings are not trustworthy. They're, they're not reliable. Put your faith in the word of God. Let your feelings follow your faith. What is going to determine our outlook on life? And then Jesus has one more application here from these words, verses 34 to 36. Be on your guard. Be on your guard for what? So that your hearts will not be weighted down. Look, he wants us focusing on eternal things, but we have a tendency, our hearts weighted down with what? Dissipation and drunkenness. We want to experience all this world has to offer in terms of libations, parties, with that dissipation and drunkenness, and the worries of life. We get worried about what's going on. What about, what about, what about? And we forget there's a big picture. God's at work. 
Why? So that day will not come, the day of his return, on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. We get weighted down and we forget about eternity. We forget there's a God who's calling the shots on all these things. There's a God who's in charge, and in a moment, he's going to come back. It's going to cause a cosmic upheaval, and he's going to make all the wrongs right, and he's going to flip the equation, just like Mr. Blueheart did when he stepped in and said, I'm going to play with the girls. See, we as a staff hope this will be a time where, as a church family, we're stepping back and we're reflecting. And again, we're considering the mystery of this Jesus who came and took on human flesh and did it for the purpose of redeeming a sinful people as a holy God. And here's the thing that's crazy about Christmas. It has its own unique worries of life that distract us. In a season, we think we'd really be focused on Jesus. Not necessarily. I was a kid, I was six years old, my parents moved to Gross Point, Michigan. That was the nicest suburb in the Detroit area. And this is 1967, this is before the auto uh, companies have been hit by the Honda and Toyota, and so GMC and Chrysler and Ford are, are doing great, and all the auto execs live in the Gross Point. Uh, so the Ford estate was in Gross Point. My dad managed my older brother's Little League baseball team, and he had Mrs. Dodge's grandson on his team. This is the kind of wealth that was in there. And my parents got in there to get in on the tax base. They had great schools, great parks, great Little League. I mean, it's just an idyllic community. Now, operative word here is comparatively, we were middle class, but comparatively, we were poor. The community was right on Lake St. Clair, and, and as you moved off the lake, the houses got smaller. We lived four blocks from the Detroit unincorporated line. So we just got in the community. And let me be clear, comparatively, I never wanted for anything. And later in life, we moved to upper middle class. But this time, we were middle class. But man, I felt it. And you know where I, one of the times I felt it? Christmas. I'd get what I thought were nice gifts. And then I'd come back to school and I'd hear about what my friends got, and I thought, wow. I didn't want to say what I got for Christmas. And I understood my parents were doing what they could, and they were primed for, and it's not, but I just felt a little, that comparison trap. You ever felt that at Christmas? Because we think about buying gifts, and what do we do, and we don't want to imagine, I hope they like our gift, and what if they don't, and and then on top of that, we got events. Don't remember, we got a Christmas party, and you go on again. What, what do you wear to that thing? And what do you, how do you go? And then, and then, you know, I mean, you're doing Christmas Eve or you're doing Christmas Day, and you're, you got family, and your mother-in-law's coming. And I mean, last year you scorched the ham and you burned the potatoes, and that was bad. And and what am I going to eat? And what am I going to serve? And oh, I haven't gotten that gift. And all these worries. They weigh us down uniquely at Christmas. And we forget about the reason for the season. What happened? God stepped out of eternity into our world that the finite could grasp the infinite. Why? Not just to know him, but that we could be redeemed. And that we could look forward to a second coming. Would we watch and pray 
that we don't miss the meaning of this season for the worries and dissipations that are uniquely during the Christmas season. Most of you know, if you don't, uh, let me see, middle of October, early November, I had cataract surgery. I had one eye, two weeks later, the other eye. And, and the first one, you know, you do the surgery, the next morning you go in, and man, it was great, I could see, it's wonderful. And, and I had minor, I had some floaters and stuff, and, but they were all gone by noon the next day. But the second one took the patch off, and I'm, I'm seeing double. So I said to the doctor, I'm seeing double. She said, oh, that's, that's pretty typical. Uh, you know, they, they numbed that eye, and so that medicine has worked out, so, you know, you're, you're not catching up. But that's unsettling. But she says, that'll go away. And then those floaters that had gone away by noon the next day, they hung around for about 48 hours. And she had told me, those, this is normal, two to five days, all these floaters will go away. And then surgery on a Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, they were bright days. It hurt my eyes. I, I had to go buy sunglasses. And they told me, that's normal. But, you know, all this is happening, and I'm thinking, do I need to call a doctor? Should I be worried about this? Now, mind you, Wednesday surgery, Thursday, they take the patch off. They get that machine. You know how that machine, if you remember the eye doctor, I mean, they get right in your business. They get right up there. Okay, look back here. Look this way. Look up. And they drops in your eyes. And, and they do that both eyes. And she said, you look good. You're going to, but you know, these things are happening and, and I'd have a conversation. There goes a floater right across your face and oh, here comes another one. And, and it's just kind of like, should I be worried about this? No, no. The doctor said, who's done thousands of these cataract surgeries, this is normal, this will go away. Could I take her at her word? I did, and by Saturday or Sunday, I was fine. Okay, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world right now that you might find unsettling. Jesus said, I got this. I'm going to come back one day, and I'm going to flip the equation. I'm going to redeem my people. Is that enough for you? Are you good taking Jesus at his word? If not, then what else are you going to count on? Because here's what Jesus said. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not. Here's the deal. Christmas has set a hope in motion. A hope that won't be stopped, that will happen. One day, Jesus is going to return to vindicate his people. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful that you are good to your word. And you've told us heaven and earth will pass away, but your word won't. Jesus, forgive us when we choose to bank on something else. We choose to bet on something else. Lord, you've promised to come back and in an instant flip the equation. Like Mr. Pluhar stepping on that floor. Changing the game. Um, but you've warned us not to be worried, not to get bogged down in the stuff of this world. Lord, that we take your word, and especially in this Christmas season with all the unique pressures of presents and parties and family and blah, 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 that we would take time to pray and consider and wonder again 
that the God of the universe would take on human flesh that we might know you. Thank you, Jesus, for this truth. It's your name we pray. Amen.